You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Former President, um, Professor Mary McAleese, Provost, Ambassador, Minister, Mr. McAleese, distinguished guests, colleagues, um, friends. It's so fabulous to see the Burke Pact this evening. Um, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities, we is we bring discussions um, uh, and perspectives of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. And obviously tonight is an important part of our public humanities programme. So next year, 2020, we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the opening of the Trinity Long Room Hub, this very beautiful building behind me, which of course is situated literally above us. Um, it's this beacon uh, celebrating the arts and humanities uh, in the heart of our historic uh, campus. And we'll tell you a lot more about our plans uh, for our birthday celebrations uh, uh, later in the year. Uh, but really tonight is about celebrating the past um, uh, and especially those who have been supporting us since the building uh, opened a decade ago. Many of our supporters are here this evening. Um, uh, especially I want to thank though the Fallon family because the Fallon family have uh, endowed this annual Edmund Burke lecture series and without their generosity, we wouldn't be sitting here this evening. Sadly, Gillian Fallon can't be here, uh, 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 but many other members of the family are. And this lecture is in memory of Porrick uh, Fallon, who uh, many of you, of course, will have known and, and loved. Um, others are phenomenal supporters of the Hub. You're all here this evening as well. Um, we really are extremely grateful to you, so thank you very much uh, indeed. We've been hosting this uh, uh, annual Edmund Burke lecture since 2014, and we've had some of the foremost thinkers uh, from the fields of history, ethics, journalism, the arts, and tonight, the field of children's rights and human rights. These lectures, we hope, honor Edmund's Burke, Edmund Burke's legacy here in Trinity, but of course, throughout the world because engaging with uh, topics that challenge our thinking, we're delighted to be able to provide a prominent forum for discussing the type of society we want to live in and the traditions, perspectives and values we need to draw in in order to shape our future. And the future of Ireland is a frame uh, within which tonight's lecture is being set, and it's very much the theme of our birthday celebrations in 2020. Um, and we are so honoured uh, that uh, 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 Professor McAleese is, is giving the lecture. Uh, as a member of the University Senate, I was thrilled uh, uh, to learn last week that uh, you are to become the new Chancellor of Trinity. Um, again, what an honour for our university and congratulations. Before I hand over to our Provost, uh, Patrick Prendergast, to uh, introduce um, uh, Professor McAleese, 
Um, I'd like to ask you to switch your phones to silent, but feel free to connect with us uh, on Twitter using the hashtag HubMatters and with our Twitter handle at TLRHHub. Now, please join me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in welcoming uh, uh, our Provost, uh, Patrick uh, Prendergast. Minister, Your Excellency, members of the Fallon uh, family, distinguished guests, welcome all to the Edmund Burke Lecture Theatre for the annual Edmund Burke Lecture. As Jane has said, this lecture is endowed by the Fallon family in honour of Trinity's distinguished alumnus, Horrock Fallon. Since its inauguration in 2014, this lecture has been a highlight of the Trinity year. Every autumn, a leading public intellectual addresses challenging issues of our time, explicitly recalling Edmund Burke's deep engagement with the issues of his day. Burke has the distinction as a political thinker of being claimed by all sides, conservatives and liberals, republicans and democrats. And not because he is all things to all people, but because of his exceptional independence of mind and clarity of thought. In the past three years, since the UK referendum on leaving the European Union, I've lost count of how many times I've read in the UK press Burke's quote, your representatives owe you not their industry only, but their judgment, and they betray you instead of serving you if they sacrifice their judgment to your opinion. And this is voiced by Remain MPs in Leave constituencies and vice versa. Burke's words have the effect always of grounding the discourse, of returning the argument to core principles. I'm not surprised that politicians of all hues turn to him. It's Trinity's honor to have educated him. All the Edmund Burke lecturers have been exceptional. Honora O'Neill, Roy Foster, Robert Fisk, Margaret Macmillan, Paul Muldoon, and now tonight's speaker, Mary McAleese. I hardly need to introduce the two-term president of Ireland. It seems a particularly apt week for her to be delivering the Edmund Burke lecture, she having been in the news all week on Wednesday last, she was presented with the prestigious Alphonse Auer Ethics Award for Catholic theologians by Tübingen University in Germany. The award, established in 2015, honors people who have distinguished themselves through a special ethical commitment to the religious, scientific, or social field. Mary was honored for her doctoral thesis on children's rights in canon law, completed last year. The following day, Thursday, she was announced as the new chancellor of this university, having been elected unopposed. Two days later, Saturday, she made headlines again, this time for her contribution to a symposium which took place, as it happens, right here in the Edmund Burke Theatre, where she spoke passionately and unsparingly against the Catholic Church's position on sexuality 
and the role of women in the church. It's an unusual Catholic theologian who speaks so unsparingly of the church three days after receiving a major award. <laughs> but as Dr. Hilda Hacker, professor of theological ethics at Loyola University in Chicago said on presenting Mary with uh, the Alphonse Auer Award, Mary McAleese is a role model, a comrade in arms, and an interlocutor whom we cannot do without and with whom we do not want to do without. Dr. Hacker praised Ms. Uh, Dr. McAleese's role as a voice for change within the Catholic Church. She said, Mary, or many of us, like Mary McAleese, cannot or do not want to run away from the church. Like her, we fight for the reform of church structures and the reform of the architecture of moral theology. It is this spirit of, for reform that has distinguished Mary McAleese throughout her remarkable career. It's what made her such a popular, indeed our only choice, as Chancellor of the University of Dublin. As the former Reed Professor of Criminal Law here, she has deep connections to Trinity. She exemplifies the scholar as advocate and the advocate as scholar. I could say a great deal more about our new Chancellor, of whom we are so very proud. But as I've said, she needs no introduction, and we're here for the Edmund Burke Lecture. Mary McAleese will draw on her doctorate thesis to talk about the future of Ireland, human rights, and children's rights. It's the second time in four days that I've had the pleasure of sitting here in the Edmund Burke Theatre with a huge crowd to hear Dr. Mary McAleese. Chancellor, your Saturday discourse made headlines around the country. I do not doubt, but that this lecture will do the same. Nor do I doubt that your view of children's rights and how we are serving them here in Ireland will shake us out of our complacency, which of course is truly Burkean. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Mary McAleese. Dr. Olmer, Minister, members of the Fallon family, and ladies and gentlemen, you do not need to go to Specsavers. That is actually me. <laughs> Just some time back. And with a little bit of obvious yes, editing. So you can relax. It is the same, one and the same person. Tonight, we're going to talk. Um, sorry. No, start again. I'm going to talk. You're unfortunately in the position of having to listen um, uh, while I talk about the future of Ireland, human rights and children's rights. And we are looking at a future for our country um, that sets before us what I'll call an evolving and a set of evolving and incohate questions about next generation constitutional structures 
and about church-state relationships. It wouldn't be me if I wasn't talking to some extent about church-state relationships. Uh, just before I came in, I phoned my mother to ask her how she was, and I told her I was going in to give a lecture in Trinity, and she said, could you not just stay home one night? <laughs> so, that's mothers for you. Yeah. The provision in the Good Friday Agreement uh, for a future border poll is the outline constitutional context. And mentioned by Antishuk during Pope Francis's visit to Ireland of a new church-state covenant is the outline context of future church-state relationships. So that's where I'm going to place myself um, tonight. These two issues are not disconnected because in the warp and weft of debates on constitutional matters, religion and religious sensibilities are rarely far from center stage, whether the axis of the debate is four square within the Republic of Ireland, whether it's in Northern Ireland, or whether it, whether it involves the entire island of Ireland. The constitutional issue is gathering a gradual momentum thanks in part to changing demographics as between nationalist and unionist voters in Northern Ireland, but also in part due to cross-community or a cross-community majority in favour of remaining in the European Union, which of course, post-Brexit, will have the option of seamless re-entry into the European Union should there emerge a majority consent for a united Ireland. So this is a really very important juncture for all of us. Uh, and it's one to be navigated with great care because the identities on which these issues tread, they are very strong and emotions around them are fragile. Repeating old narratives about righting past wrongs or rehearsing Reformation and counter-Reformation divisions, they are not good building blocks for a new future. Somehow, we have to move beyond them to a new magnanimity, capable of carefully developing the constitutional question without disturbing the peace. Sometime in the years ahead, and we do not know when, but sometime, we face the creative challenge of constructing in draft form a detailed plan for a reconciled Ireland. And if it is to be at all persuasive or attractive, it will have to derive from a broad and all-inclusive consensus underpinned by parity of esteem, by generosity, and a genuine sensitivity around deeply held identities strong enough to bridge very deep fractures. It will have to do that, somewhat regrettably, against a weakening background where we will have lost the cohesion, the solidarity, the everyday communication, and the mutuality that comes with shared membership of the European Union. For almost 50 years, the depth, the density, the regularity, the everydayness of our engagement with the United Kingdom as a European partner has helped to develop the much healthier relationships we all now enjoy and have until recently really taken for granted. It was an essential part, European Union membership was an essential part of the alchemy 
that significantly reduced intercommunal tensions, that ended paramilitarism, and delivered a peace process that was supported right across the communities. The Good Friday Agreement never contemplated, much less provided, for a situation in which the United Kingdom would withdraw from the European Union. After all, it was our common membership of the Union which helped to recast the character of Northern Ireland from a place of two terminally estranged communities by offering a common and a transcendent parallel European identity to both Unionist and Nationalist. It helped recast Ireland, Northern Ireland and, the Great, and Great Britain as much more than estranged neighbours, but as partners in probably what I believe to be the noblest enterprise ever ventured upon by Europeans in the history of Europe. Brexit has interrupted that process dramatically and the convulsive effect it has had on United Kingdom politics is not something that we would wish imported into our present or into our future. Rather, we need to insist that post-Brexit, the possibility of a future border poll must lead to a much more cerebral and less emotional debate about the future relationship between both parts of this island. Brexit has at least been an object lesson in how not to go about radical constitutional change. Long, long before any border poll goes live, we need to do what Brexit has abjectly failed to do, and that is to prepare well, to delve deeply, objectively, and in a considered way, and in a scholarly way, into the complex of issues it raises. So the goal has to be to construct a new political configuration capable of comfortably accommodating all identities, including those historically uncomfortable with one another. Brexit has produced an enraged rather than an engaged civic society, and we will have to do a lot better than that. Civic society in Ireland has shown itself to be moving comprehensively and confidently in the direction of becoming a modern, egalitarian, secular state. Northern Ireland's been a bit more tentative, but that should not obscure that in reality, it too is a changed and changing society. The benefits of peace and the Good Friday Agreement have been evident in the growing normalization of North-South and East-West relationships impacting many, many sectors. But there are strong undercurrents that are also in some ways hopeful in this island pulling us in directions that are more compatible with each other than in the past. We have seen in recent times religious conservatives on both sides of the border finding common cause around certain socio-moral issues, while those pursuing the same issues but on the other side, from the liberal perspective, have also found common cause across the border. We have majorities on both sides of the border which are pro-EU, and regardless of the attitude to Brexit and regardless of nationalist or unionist sympathies, everyone agrees there can be no return to a hard border. These are good takeaway positives. 
In a lot of respects, the communities on both sides of the border, if not exactly on the same page, they are on similar pages. A recurring issue in both jurisdictions concerns education, and in particular, expanding the range of choice of school systems. Now, I want to come at those debates tonight in the context of children's rights, but I want to come at the debate in a different way from the usual arguments about whether it's integrated education, reduction of Catholic school patronage, how to provide opt-outs um, or options for those who wish to withdraw from religious uh, education or those who want alternatives to faith-based schools. Instead, I want to look at and look closely at an overlooked issue which should be on the agenda of any future discussions about church-state relations or a church-state covenant. Because it has important implications for Ireland's future and debates that we might have around what that future will look like for the children who might share this island. It concerns how children's rights to human, to children's human rights to freedom of religion including freedom to change religion, freedom of thought, and freedom of conscience. These are rights that are set out in Article 14 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. How these are being experienced by children here. Now, I'm going to look at the major service provider of education services to children within this jurisdiction, and that is the Latin Catholic Church. But what I have to say is transferable to other denominations, other faith systems, and other education service providers generally in our education system. Because all need to be asked the same question and held to account for their responsibilities in fully respecting the rights of the child. So I'm hoping that we can prize open a debate that needs to be had between parents, adolescent children, the state, civic society, and the education providers, including churches. It's a debate that has been gestating, but semi-incoherently in recent years, without really finding clarity or focus in its voice. So let's try and see if we can do a little bit of that. The Latin Catholic Church and you might be surprised to hear me use that term, but that is the appropriate term, the Latin Catholic Church. Um, comes as a surprise to a lot of people to learn there are 24 versions of the Catholic Church or 24 rites within it, and in Ireland we are dominated by the Latin rite. So it's the Latin Catholic Church. It is the biggest service provider of educational services to children in our country, bar none. Some 90% of all primary schools are Catholic controlled, and faith-based schools um, account for some 60% of second-level schools, with, of course, the Catholic Church predominating also in that sector. The very dominance of Catholic schools has provoked considerable debate, uh, prompted by a growing multicultural demographic and a diminishing religious um, homogeneity. But most discussions have actually been about exceptionalism, about providing opt-outs or options for what I might call the non-normative. And I want to look more broadly 
at how Article 14 human rights, the, the Article 14 human rights of Catholic children, who are the majority norm in our schools, are being protected and respected by our major service provider. Our understanding of children's rights has developed hugely since Article 42 of the 1937 Constitution was drafted. Still is extant, it guarantees to respect the inalienable right and duty of parents to provide for the religious, moral, and moral education of their children. The state's role was largely functional um, in support of and subordinate to parents. Children's rights were not mentioned in that constitution. Instead, they were subsumed into family and parental rights. In practical terms, the obligation of Catholic parents and Catholic schools was to hand on the faith, and the duty of children was to grasp the baton handed to them, thus sustaining an unbroken continuum of generational denominational adherence. That model made no provision for a child's right to make his or her own choices when sufficiently mature to do so. It can no longer sustain that position. Times and attitudes have changed. In 1989, after a very, very lengthy debate that was championed by a Catholic priest, a Belgian, Canon Joseph Mormon, one of the great champions and fathers of the Convention the Rights of the Child, that very radical convention presented the child now as a holder of autonomous rights, including the right to freedom of religion, which in brackets includes the freedom to change religion, freedom of thought and freedom of conscience. Parental rights are, of course, acknowledged in the convention, but they are explained in more nuanced and less absolute terms than they were pre previously understood to include. Yes, even in the convention and under our law, parents have the right to baptize their children in their faith, to raise and educate their children according to their own faith, their own conviction and their own rituals. That is, there's no argument about that. Those rights continue to exist, but under the convention, they now have an obligation to do so in a manner which respects and facilitates the child's right to form its own independent and different views when it is capable of doing so. In other words, they don't have to raise their children in a neutral environment, in a religious neutral environment. They have the right to guide their child to direct their child's religious formation, but they do not have a right to impose it on them for life. Children have to be free to choose when they are capable of doing so and prepared through their childhood and adolescent formation for taking on that personal responsibility. Importantly, they must know they have that freedom the Convention on the Rights of the Child rapidly became the most ratified treaty in the history of United Nations treaties. All United Nations member states um, are state parties with the exception of one. You probably can guess which one that is. I know you know, <laughs> and that's the United States. Um, 
The Holy See, which has permanent representative status at the United Nations um, and which governs the Universal Catholic Church, was one of the very first state parties to ratify the convention and therefore to become a state party. And an important point to make here is that during the drafting, the long, tortuous process of drafting the convention, the Holy See was directly involved in drafting the travel preparatoire. That means the Holy See can have been in absolutely no doubt when it signed on the dotted line and undertook its state party obligations as to the convention's content and intent. Every state party voluntarily undertakes exactly the same treaty obligations. They all sign the same contract. And they do so voluntarily. And so they agree to ensure the convention's rights, and this is the words of the convention, to each child within their jurisdiction and to undertake all appropriate legislative, administrative, and other measures for the implementation of the rights. Each state party makes a regular progress report to what's called to a monitoring committee of experts called the Committee on the Rights of the Child. And that committee often makes recommendations for better protection of children's rights. State parties are expected to bring their laws into line with the convention. Why? Because that's what they promised to do. And these rights are inalienable rights. They derive from the nature of the human person. So, for example, here in Ireland, we changed our laws on corporal punishment not so terribly long ago um, to conform to the Convention's view that the child has a right to bodily integrity, which excludes the use of corporal punishment even by parents. In 2015, we added a new constitutional provision, Article 42A, to our Constitution, by which the state recognized and affirmed what it calls the natural and imprescriptible rights of all children and undertook, as far as practicable, to protect and vindicate those rights. So this gave firm constitutional recognition to the child as an autonomous rights holder. It didn't elaborate, and it doesn't elaborate, a list of rights, doesn't need to. We're a state party to the convention. We go to the convention, and there they are listed. And like all conventions, the rights are pretty, they're broadly scoped. They're not fleshed out in great detail. But this is a rapidly developing area. The detail is being fleshed out. The Catholic Church is by far the biggest NGO in the world providing over 200,000 schools for some 60 million children in five continents. It has a unique reach, it has a unique experience, which is why, alone of all faith systems in the world, the Holy See, uh, which governs the Catholic Church, enjoys the special status of permanent representative at the United Nations. It became a state party to the convention in 1990. It was the fourth state party to do so. And indeed, it has advocated others right around the world to join and to become state parties. There is now a very extensive body of correspondence between the Holy See and the Committee on the Rights of the Child. It goes back now to 1992. And also importantly, there's a body of other 
um, that we have another UN monitoring, we have quite a number of UN monitoring bodies, but there is one on the elimination of discrimination. And the Holy See is also a state party to that treaty. So we have, and it goes back long before the convention, the rights of the child. So we have a very substantial body now of correspondence between the Holy See and the committees, the UN commit monitoring committees on the subject of human rights. Rather regrettably, as an aside, it is not a, it is not a state party to the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. I wonder why. The Catholic Church operates a system of law, a very comprehensive system of law called canon law, set out in a code in 1983, and that applies to all 1.2 billion members of the church worldwide, including children. That is 16% of the world's population. It is hugely, hugely influential. In 2014, the Committee on the Rights of the Child asked the Holy See, in its words, to undertake a comprehensive review of its normative framework, framework, in particular canon law, with a view to ensuring its full compliance with the Convention. The Holy See has refused to do so. It argues that the discussion, or any discussion, of canon law lies outside the remit of the committee. The committee argues this simply cannot be the case. What it says is, read the text of what you signed up to. You have the same state party obligations as every other state party. In other words, the view of the committee is that the Holy See has an obligation to ensure that its system of canon law, which is applicable across the Universal Church, including here in Ireland, that it must conform to the Convention's principles. There's currently a standoff between the Holy See and the CRC on this issue. It's worth noting, however, that the Holy See itself had freely raised and discussed issues, including controversial issues concerning canon law, with the CRC and other treaty monitoring bodies for decades, without once raising any hesitation about the committee's jurisdiction. It had been a state party to the Convention on the Rights of the Child for 24 years when it challenged the committee's jurisdiction for the first time. That time coincided, and I'm sure it was a coincidence, with the first time the clerical child sex abuse scandals became a matter for discussion with the Committee on the Rights of the Child. The Holy See State Party status as a, an institution which subscribes to the Convention allows it to look as if it subscribes to all the children's rights set out in the Convention, including freedom of religion and freedom of thought and conscience. Its current insistence that canon law is immune, hermetically sealed by its religious freedom, is the argument, from the impact of the Convention, that contradicts the logic of its own state party undertakings, and it has to raise a flag of concern. Given the Holy See's relationship with the biggest single provider of education services in Ireland, the extent of its influence on its access to children makes state scrutiny and accountability essential to ensure children's rights are fully respected. So 
are they? To answer that, but only to a small extent because the work really has not been done, to answer that, we have to go much deeper than merely looking at how school curricula provide for diversity or provide information or teaching about other religions and perspectives. We have to look at how or what it is that, that is in canon law that the Catholic Church is so determined to protect from scrutiny. And what we're going to find there is an adamant church claim to have rights over children and indeed over parents' choices, which at best limit and at worst eliminate their fundamental rights to freedom of religion, thought and conscience. Let me explain why I've come to that conclusion. In Catholic canon law, Catholic parents are obliged to baptize their children as soon as possible after birth. And consequently, the vast majority of children are baptized as infants. I imagine the numbers worldwide are about 84%. I imagine that percentage is much higher in Ireland. It is not possible to be born a Catholic. Any of you who've been to see Mary, Queen of Scots, the recent film, will know it opens with the statement, Mary, Queen of Scots, was born a Catholic. Ruined the film for me. <laughs> Completely ruined the film. And for everybody else I was with, because we were there with the entire family, a whole row of us. There it was, the first line. And I said to Martin, that is theologically, juridically, and canonically <laughs> completely inaccurate. And I start to mutter, and from the far end, my son Justin says, Mum, we're all theologically literate in this row, would you shut up and let us watch the film? And I said to myself, how can it happen that you spend all these years making a film and in the opening line you get it so wrong? Anyway, it is not possible to be born a Catholic. But in a way, we're kind of all, we're all responsible for that phrase. How often do we use it? I was born Catholic. We're all born Catholic. No, we weren't. <laughs> One becomes a Catholic by baptism. And that is the nub of the issue here. Baptism in the Catholic Church has two quite distinct sets of consequences, one theological, the other juridic. And my argument now is we need to separate them a little bit. The theological and you might call them spiritual are seen as divinely ordained, a gratuitous, a free gift from God, indelible, unchangeable. The juridic, on the other hand, are man-made, they're bolted on and they are therefore changeable. Indeed, they have changed over the centuries. The theological, those of us who are born in the Catholic tradition will understand, um, the child is freed from original sin. That opens up the prospect of salvation. That was very important, particularly to parents in a time of um, high levels of infant mortality. Um, they're born again um, as a child of God, made like to Christ by an indelible character incorporated into the Christian body, the Christophedelas, and importantly given the grace, the free grace of the ongoing sacrament. And just to be absolutely clear, I take no issue with that part of uh, that aspect of infant baptism. It is perfectly consistent with parental rights to baptize their child and give them the benefit of the free God-given gift of the grace of the sacrament. So, Infant baptism is not, my, is not the problem. 
It's the consequence, the juridic consequence of infant baptism, because these juridic consequences, which are bolted on by man-made canon law, these are a different order, a different nature from the theological and the spiritual. And some of them are not consistent with a child's right to freedom of conscience, thought, and religion, including the right to change religion. And these rights are understood today in ways that are very, very different from our past understanding of children's rights. And those changed understandings have yet to be reflected in canon law. The juridic or the canon law consequences of baptism include the imposition on the day you are baptized of lifelong church membership, which can never be rescinded. It also includes becoming, becoming subject to church laws from the age of seven on reaching the use of reason. Being deemed by baptism to have made personal promises to fulfill the many, many onerous obligations which canon law imposes on church members. Now these promises were in fact made by adults on the child's behalf and in circumstances where clearly the child could not have been aware of the promises or of their import. I speak as the, the oldest of nine children, the youngest of whom I remember on a Sunday sticking under my oxter and literally racing into the chapel to have him baptized. Um, and uh, no parent present, incidentally, and just my brother and I, and he was profoundly deaf and he hadn't a clue what was going on. And there was I um, as the godmother um, bringing the child for baptism and in so doing immersing him um, yes in the beautiful theological grace but also handing him lifelong membership of the church and a string of obligations. The Catholic child will also of course enter a web of relationships and structures that are set out in canon law that are designed to secure his or her formation as a church member. That web involves parents, godparents, Catholic schools, teachers, pastor, parish, diocese, Catholic community, the local Episcopal conference, church authorities, including the legislative authority of the Pope and the College of Bishops. And all of these work to one model. And it's a model that says that the child by baptism has now embraced the Catholic faith. And having embraced it, is now obliged to profess it, by which is meant keep the promises, honor the obligations. When the Second Vatican Council's document on religious freedom, um, Dignitatis Humanae, says quite emphatically, no one can be forced to embrace the faith, you would look at that and say, well, doesn't that give some recognition to the freedom of members? Well, actually no, because that's where you have to read the small print. Dignitatis Humanae does not apply to members of the Catholic Church. Dignitatis Humanae applies to those who might be, who are not baptized and who are outside the Catholic Church and who cannot be forced to what is called embrace the faith. That is what is meant by dignitatis humanae. Once you have embraced the faith, you are obliged to profess it. Children 
who are baptized at two days, one week, two months old, are deemed by the church to have embraced the faith. So the baptized child, um, say, is deemed to have already embraced the faith voluntarily. And neither dignitatis humanae nor its logic applies to him or her. Consequently, if you look then at what flows from that, is the education, the formation, the catechesis that a child will now receive to receive the faith, to ha have the faith handed on. That catechesis is a catechesis of obligation. It is based on the view that the child has assumed voluntarily these obligations. It tells the child, here is what you must accept, here is what you must believe, here's what you must practice. It is not a catechesis of invitation. It doesn't say, we invite you to consider and evaluate and make up your own mind. Now, it's one thing to acknowledge the right of parents to bring up their children in their faith and to introduce them to the rites and rituals of their faith, as both national and international law do. It's quite another thing to impose significant obligations on children which trammel on their freedom of religion, thought, and conscience and to do that on the basis of promises allegedly made, which are a fiction because these promises were not made by the child, they are essentially a fiction. Now, the church is well aware that there is a dilemma here. It's just a dilemma it has never faced up to. Its own theological commission has said that in the case of those baptized as infants, there is a lack of free will and responsible choice on the part of infants. That's pretty obvious. The logic of that statement, though, has never been faced by the church. And if I shift just for a second to the civil law of contract, contract, for example, I know there's a few lawyers here in the audience. We will all know, those of us who are lawyers, and I think most people will kind of regard it as fairly, fairly obvious, that onerous contractual obligations imposed on children by adults or entered into by adults on behalf of children are likely to be rendered void or voidable at the initiative of the child when he or she becomes capable of making a good judgment, what we call a sui compass judgment, when they have the maturity to do so with full knowledge and consent. The church offers no such option to either adults or children. Church members have rights that are set out in canon law, but the fullness of the rights that are acknowledged in secular international human rights laws set out, for example, in the Convention the Rights of the Child or indeed in the many other conventions that we now benefit from, these are not recognized in canon law. All such freedoms are subordinated to the demands of compulsory obedience to the church's teaching magisterium, that is, to the teaching of the bishops, and the obligation to maintain communion with the church, that means being involved in taking the sacraments and accepting the governance structures of the church, and importantly, the church's insistence on the old adage, semel catholicus, semper catholicus, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, a lifelong obligation. Canon law, for that reason, among others, has quite a complex penal system with tribunals, with trials, with judgments, with penalties, with delicts, that's offences. And there are canonical penalties 
for church delicts, which can include um, delicts such as serious dissent from church teaching, for schism, for heresy, for apostasy. Children between the ages of 16 and 18 can have mitigated penalties imposed upon them. And as a child-oriented aside, just for our information, remarkably for such a sophisticated system, the Murphy Tribunal wrote that it did not encounter one single instance of a clerical child sexual abuse case where canon law was of any use to a victim. From the age of seven, which the church deems the age of discretion, a child is seen as capable of grave sin and must confess all grave sins at least once a year in the sacrament of penance, which Pope John Paul described as a judicial process. So it subjects children from the age of seven to a judicial process. In the sacrament of confirmation, the child is asked to renew his or her baptismal promises as if they had actually personally made such promises in the first place, which they didn't. And interestingly, confirmation imposes a new and enhanced set of obligations on the child, including to profess Christ publicly. They now become milites testes. Anybody remember that phrase? They now are expected to profess Christ publicly and, if necessary, be willing to die for the faith. This is set out. You'll see those references in Dignitatis Humanae and in Lumen Gentium. These are the documents from the Second Vatican Council. And there's absolutely no clarity as to whether confirmation is at the child's choice. The logic of Dignitatis Humanae and the Holy See's state party support for the child's right to freedom of religion, conscience, and belief as set out in the convention, they have introduced a whole raft of new fresh considerations to the question of children's rights and fundamental freedoms, which the church has yet to explore, to clarify, and to reconcile. The role and rights of the Catholic Church are melded here with parental rights and obligations in a way that has not historically conduced to disaggregation, but today they are interrupted now and they are challenged by an understanding of individual human rights which is different from the past and in particular of children's autonomous rights. As the child grows into adolescence, becomes capable of exercising freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, freedom of opinion, agency shifts from parent to child and the child's right to decide becomes exercisable. But Importantly, the previous years of his upbringing are supposed to be able, supposed to be designed to help him to use that freedom and to exercise that freedom. Canon law today is a repository of largely uncritiqued, unsystematized, unsystematized rights and obligations which directly and indirectly impact children. They have those rights and obligations by virtue of baptism, says the church. But running in parallel with those rights, they now have recognized at international law level and in our national law and in our constitution, inalienable human autonomous rights. Where the church says its members are bound to the church for life by baptism, 
Human rights law says, no, you can freely leave. Exactly when a person is free to leave is debatable, but it's interesting. A number of jurisdictions, most recently the Nordic countries, have legislated for the age of 14 or 15 as the age at which a child can determine that they now want to leave the religion in which they were raised. Those state party obligations in these Nordic countries and elsewhere, they are made in order to vindicate the adolescent child's Article 14 rights, to bring that country into conformity with the Convention. We've yet to have that debate. When canon law says an infant can be held to the fiction of promises it did not make and never had the opportunity to evaluate, to validate or repudiate, when capable of doing so, human rights says you can't do that. So we now are in the situation of two parallel tracks that do not seem yet to be reconciled, though one would have thought that state partyhood of the convention would help to facilitate that reconciliation. And what is really surprising is that as a global advocate on behalf of all the world's children for the principles set out in the convention, and as a major service provider to children worldwide of education, as an organization with a huge child membership of well over 300 million children, the Holy See has never conducted a comprehensive internal review of the rights and obligations of its own child members within its own legal system. The church has a tremendous capacity for speaking out from what Ban Ki-moon uh, described as um, the pulpit of the world, uh, speaking out to the world. What it has never been particularly good at is talking back into its own space, into its own internal space, um, having the debate internally. And this is a debate that a very important body charged by the United Nations with protecting our children's rights. This is a debate that the Committee on the Rights of the Child has solemnly asked the Holy See to undertake. The Church, of course, and its members are entitled to the full protection afforded by their right to religious freedom, to exercise their religious freedom. But as a former Attorney General here in this country observed, the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church's canon law does not confer a right on the Church to ignore state laws or international law. That goes also for the internal laws of any denomination, any faith system, or any ideological system which is delivering those services to our children. We need a clear acknowledgement from the major provider of those services that the canon laws which constrict children's rights have indeed now been overtaken and are recognized by the Holy See as having been overtaken by the Convention and our Constitution. The Catholic Church's contribution to Ireland's past and present is enormous. Its contribution to education is exceptional. Few countries have been impacted as profoundly as Ireland has been by the Church's assumption of responsibility for education, healthcare, welfare and charitable outreach. 
It is, as we have to acknowledge, it is a story of both dark and light. But importantly, it is a very strong continuing story with a remarkable degree of mutual dependence and likely to remain so. Any covenant between church and state must be about the future of our children because any debate about Ireland's future is about the future of children, children whose voices we need to hear. Are we currently realizing their rights to freedom of conscience, thought and religion or do those rights remain in the paralyzed abstract? For as Edmund Burke would have it, abstract liberty like other mere abstractions is not to be found. In Abu Dhabi earlier this year on the 4th of February, Pope Francis and the Grand Imam of the Al-Hazar, Ahmed al Tayyib, co-signed a document entitled Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and living together. And we certainly have an aspiration for peace and living together on this island. The declaration asserts that, in its words, freedom is a right of every person. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. That's what it says. Canon law flatly contradicts that flatly contradicts that in regard to members of the Catholic Church, particularly in relation to children. The stable future that we yearn for will be lived by children raised in all denominations, faiths and none. And we are still in the throes of shifting from an ages old embedded culture of presumption that children should be seen and not heard, spoken for and about but not speaking for themselves. We are shifting now, little by little, to a culture where they have autonomous rights to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion that we have to help prepare them to exercise. And we should be in no doubt that this marks a catharsis because religious identities have historically been formidably strong and formidably important they have not always facilitated living together in peace. Yet peace is our heart's desire and our ambition. To get to that new Ireland, we now have to learn new ways of guiding and directing our children. So that when the mantle of personal responsibility shifts from our shoulders to theirs at some stage in their late adolescence, as their capacity evolves moving towards adulthood, we have to help them to be prepared and able to exercise their freedoms well. Any covenant between church and state should start with children's rights. So should any talk about Ireland's future. I believe it's a very, very good place to begin. Thank you very much. <laughs>